you know, I was going to give you crap. I was going to be like, so you left the music industry to go into law. Was was it for more cocaine? <laughs> hey, this is Party Like a Rockstar podcast, and I'm your host, Joel. Today's episode is brought to you by Misha's Kind Foods. They're an LA-based small business making the world's finest non-dairy cheese on the market today. They're lactose-free, paleo, keto, kosher, perev, and 100% vegan. If you like what you see, check out the next video. If you like this video, please subscribe and like by clicking the little round button on the bottom right. To learn more about me or other guests on the show, go to joelrody.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. The handle is joelrody. If you haven't already read my book, Memoir of a Roadie, it's now available through Amazon and paperback, Kindle, or as an audiobook. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, let me introduce you two guys, and we'll get going. Al Stahaley was in the Stahaley Brothers, the Nick Ravenides, John Cipollina Band, and Spirit. Songs he's written have been recorded by Keith Moon, Bobby Gentry, Patty Dahlstrom, who I looked up, who was absolutely gorgeous, and she was such a good singer. So off the bat, thank you, man. I, I got a chance to listen to somebody I'd never heard of. I really liked her and a hell of a songwriter in her own right. So throw her some love. Nick Gravenites, John Cipollina, Peter Cox, and Marty Balin. In addition to performing, Stahaley has brought music publishing and business, music business law at, or has taught music publishing and music business law at both the Art Institute of Houston and St. Thomas University. William Garrett Walden known as W.G. Stuffy Walden, is an American musician and composer of film and television soundtracks. Other than being a buddy here of Al, <laughs> Walden is an Emmy Award winner for the theme music to The West Wing and has been nominated for numerous Emmys throughout his career. In addition, he has received 26 BMI Awards. Some of the other shows he scored themes for are The Wonder Years, Roseanne, Ellen, My So-Called Life, and Felicity. So welcome, fellas. <laughs> and hey, so yeah. looking back here, I realize you guys have actually known each other a really long time. I, I was I was trying to put it together, but did you guys meet in 1974? Or did you know each other prior to? I don't remember the exact year. Do you snuff me? In fact, I was trying to think who actually introduced us in the first place. Was it Austin Godsey or? I think it was either Austin or it was Nancy Nash, one of the two. Ah, Okay. Well, and your brother's yeah, girlfriend. <laughs> that's right, my brother's uh, live-in girlfriend at the time. Uh, I don't remember wh who introduced us, but we started playing together. This was after the Haley Brothers, uh, which we, uh, my brother and I did an album after we left Spirit, uh, the Haley Brothers. But Snuffy, had, I think you'd uh, recently left Stray Dog, or that right. group had broken up which was uh, a really cool band on uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer's Manticore records. Right. And so I was, I was bound and determined to get a record, a solo deal. And so instead keep joining bands that break up and little did I know what I was in for on that journey, but uh, Snuffy joined me on that, a lot, a big part of that journey playing gigs around LA uh, and Starwood is one that one club we used to play when that used to be the big deal down on uh, sure. Santa Monica Boulevard and Crescent Heights. And we used to play down at some of the beach clubs in Redondo and Hermosa. And we played 
a gig or two in Colorado and up in the Bay Area. So would and, you play bass, Al? Uh, you know, I played some, but really we, most of the time, because I was writing songs at that time to try to get a solo deal and we're not as much rock oriented uh, as say the ones I wrote for Spirit, even though we did in the live shows some of the Spirit songs that I wrote. Uh, I wanted to play rhythm guitar. So we, yeah. Baylor Hildebrand uh, was a guy that really good bass player that played with us most of that time. And then I'd pick up the bass and play on Cadillac Cowboys and some of the ones that I played bass on in Spirit. But most, mostly I played uh mostly acoustic good guitar. guitar yeah yeah mostly had, acoustic, yeah, yeah you're, had, uh, you're acoustic and everything i found stuff so i'm a, not that you can't play other stuff but that's what i was seeing so were you guys just like the battle of the guitars on stage together <laughs> not at all you know the funny the funny thing was uh, i was purely electric guitar player then when i started scoring television i borrowed my acoustic guitar to do my first tv show so no, Al, Al was the only acoustic guitar player on that stage, and I was the loud guy, because they're always <laughs> asking to turn down. No, i tell you what, uh, I, there's no way I could compete as a guitar player with Snuffy. I, I, if I was going to stay in the business, I knew I had to write a song and sing it. <laughs> uh, yeah. But we, we always had good guys playing with us. Uh, sometimes on drums, it was Curly Smith, who had been my drummer back in Texas before I came to LA and that's in fact that's how I ended up in spirit because he had joined Mark Andes and Jay Ferguson when they left to start Jojo Gunn and uh, so Mark Andes and those guys introduced me to at Cassidy, John Locke, Randy California and that's when I started rehearsing with them and ended up joining that band but then uh, Curly played with us sometime who else played drums with us sometimes Snuffy? Um, God, I'm trying Mark to remember Snuffy. I can picture him but Curly, you know, it was Curly and uh, Mark Olson and Valor and Al, you know, that I remember as the main section behind you. Actually, uh, later on, now that I think about it, and you, uh, Mark Singer played drums. Oh, Mark Singer, of course, yes. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of good times with Mark. We're still in touch with uh, Mark. In fact, I went to his wedding in England a few years ago. He was a big old, tall, curly-headed boy. Smacked those drums. <laughs> and then uh, Al Garth played sax and violin. He had, by that time he had left uh, Lagos and Messina. So whatever point he left them, he started playing uh, with us and was an incredible double uh, to have a guy who can play sax and play violin. I mean, I don't know anybody else that does that. And for some reason that maybe Snuffy can explain to me or some musicologist can explain to me, whatever song a sax doesn't fit on, a fiddle does. A fiddle will. <laughs> and, and vice versa. I, I don't know. I don't know the reason for that. You I know just... what's funny is a tangent, but it was, uh, I, I watched the other day, it was Kenny Loggins performing on, you know, Daryl's house. Have you guys watched that now? I'm assuming you have. It's, oh yeah. It's so good. It's so good. But Loggins wrote uh, Danny's song when he was in high school, is what he says in the episode. I'm kind of like, wow, <laughs> you know? You hear if about the Neil Young. You got to use it, you know? We have what? If it's a good song, got to keep it around. Yeah, well, he, say, he says, he's like, yeah, and then I've had to play it all these years. And, you know, so Hall's like, well, it's a good problem to have, you know? So, yeah, that's right. But uh, I can't oh, believe so. writing that in high school. It's amazing. Like, the, youth, the youthfulness of writing these big songs is crazy to me. 
So I'm going to ask you guys, uh, intimidation. So intimidation is, uh, so you had Randy California and I don't believe you played in the band at the same time as him. Is that right, Al? He was in the band when I joined and we rehearsed together for a while, but Randy had some issues at the time and decided to leave. And so then, uh, uh, the two original members, Ed Cassidy and John Lockford, decided, well, should we continue? So, but we kept rehearsing the new songs that uh, I was writing and John was writing. Yeah. And uh, worked them up three piece. And while they were still to try, deciding what to do, and th this sounds crazy when you think about it, but we actually went out and did a few gigs of Spirit as a trio oh, uh, wow. before my brother joined. And Ed Cassidy, being from the old school of, you know, the, the jazz uh, beatnik era, he liked the idea of a trio, it, it, something about that, you know, kind of appealed to him. Charm, there's certainly charm. <laughs> but then uh, my brother, who was just 19 at the time, was playing in a band in Austin with Tommy Shannon and Uncle John Turner, who had recently left uh, Donnie, Winter. Donnie Winter. Yeah. Yeah. And in a band called Cracker Jack and, and also was... Uh, you know, great keyboard player uh, playing in that band that wrote Cold Shot with uh, Stevie, or for Stevie later on, uh, Mike Kindred. Anyway, John came out to visit. He came over to a rehearsal place, played with us, and the guys asked him to join. And so he joined just just weeks, really, before we did the feedback album. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, I never got a chance to do gigs with Randy, but I'll, I'll tell you kind of an interesting thing. Later on, after feedback came out, Randy invited me over to his apartment and played me a cassette. He had a feedback where he had overdubbed some guitar parts on it. And, and I, he was interested in coming back into the band, which I thought had been a great idea. Interestingly enough, his stepdad, Ed Cassidy, wasn't really into the idea at that moment. Uh, but anyway, I don't, I've forgotten what the question was or whether or not I've answered. Well, I didn't get, I didn't get to it, so you're okay. But it was intimidation. So the intimidation questions is for both of you guys, I think. So <clears throat> Randy uh, had played with Jimi Hendrix, right? And so um, was Jimi Hendrix at the time such a big name that you were like, well, I'm going to be playing with this, or I'm, you know, I'm replacing it, or I'm working with this band where the guy was with Jimi Hendrix or... Are, were you, was your headspace not going there? And then for uh, you, Snuffy, was um, for for um, doing the, the Wonder Years, did they already have the opening where it's like, okay, we're going to try and rework some stuff here by a band called The Beatles and uh, Joe Cocker singing it? And you're kind of like, yay, <laughs> this sounds easy. <laughs> so uh, that's my question for both of you guys is the uh, coming into a gig, I guess, where you have these other guys where you're like, oh, man. <laughs> Al with this, but I, I wanted to interject Please. that, you know, John, Al, all these people were from Texas, as well as I was. Yeah. And it's funny, we didn't ever meet there, but we actually connected in Los Angeles. But we're, you know, this, everybody's talking about, it's all these Texas musicians, not spirit, but uh, all the, the people kind of that circled around us and which is, I think interesting because I, I just picked up on it as you were talking. I was going, no, that's right, Al. We were all in Austin and Houston and and totally, uh, I guess we just connected because of, of the roots. But it's funny that we were so many 
Texans all in a row there. But you you go first on his uh, Wonder Years question because I want to hear the answer too. You know, I, it's funny. I fell into this whole scoring thing uh, because an agent approached me in night uh, Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty six, and said, "Listen, Ry Cooter's priced himself out of the business. Would you be interested in doing guitar scores?" Now I didn't even own an acoustic guitar then. And I was playing electric guitar and I went up for a couple of movies and got close, but I didn't even, uh, I didn't even have a reel where I'd written any music for film. All I had were guitar solos I played for other people. So uh, when 30 something came up, they wanted, uh, they wanted to get a guy who was doing something different and they saw everybody in town. It's a long story, longer story I needed to get into, but absolutely by chance I got that gig and Wonder Years was the next gig. And uh, when Wonder Years came up, Wonder Years came on after the Super Bowl. It premiered after the Super Bowl in 1988, January of 88. And, you know, they had the they had the opening set as a little help from my friends. And they had temp, temp scored it all with uh, uh, a bunch of, you know, beautiful records uh you know simon and garfunkel all this kind of stuff and i had to kind of step up and replace all that yeah it was so was it challenging i figured they were going to find out i didn't have a clue what i was doing anyway so talk about intimidation i i knew they were going to find out that i was an absolute fake and i felt that way for about 15 years so a long uh, time yeah you know it takes a long time to get that stuff that's ingrained in your brain out. And uh, I finally realized at some point, 15 years into my career, when I actually lost a, an Emmy to somebody else, I realized that I was there at the table and I belonged to be at the table. So, Well, do you think that you worked harder because you were like trying to make this work or, you know, you're stressed out about it happening? And do you think that you put more effort into it than, than needed? To be? I figured it was going to last a couple of years on the outside. And I knew I had to work twice as hard to be half as good. So I put in 14, 16 hours a day. Yeah. And, and I kept getting amazed that people would call because people liked the work. Nobody was doing acoustic guitar scores at that time. It, it was fresh. Now, if you'd asked me to do a John Williams score and put a gun to my head, I'd have to say no, and you'd have to shoot me because I'd had no schooling. I couldn't read music. I'd never taken a music course in college. But what I what I did have was a sensibility in an ear, which I really used primarily when I was working with Al. You know, he would show us a song, and I'd just kind of do what I could do to it. Right, Al? That was about it. I, I tell you, when I listen back to this stuff after having not listened to it for a while, I'm amazed at some of the stuff that you and the other guys added to these songs that I wrote. In fact, one of my favorite things is on Chipping Away uh, to listen to your solo on that. And then you, then Al Garth comes in with his fiddle. And then right at the end of that, you two guys do a thing together. That's one of the, that's one of my favorite moments on this uh, this whole record. So, uh, it, so, but I tell you, I'm so proud of Snuffy because back in those days, I mean, it was obvious he was an incredible electric guitar player. But if he would have asked me 
okay, the guys you know who end up being the, the TV music guy, you know, I would have never <laughs> thought Snuffy because I mean, he's boss to the wall, <laughs> guitar player. I mean, those are keyboard guys that do that that movie music stuff, you know. Yeah. So I, I think it's so cool that it worked out the way it did. I was blessed. Well, we all do. You wrote some really great stuff, man. <laughs> it's good. Uh, Al, you didn't answer the question, though. <laughs> ah, uh, intimidated by joining Spirit? Uh, uh, these lawyers, you got to be careful. Uh, you got to watch them, man. Keep them on his toes. <laughs> so, well, yeah, so what it was, was joining Spirit. And my question, honestly, was like Randy California. And it could be a different scenario. It, it could be, honestly, Keith Moon, if you want, where you're going to write a track for somebody big like that or or – Actually, it, I don't even know how that came about. Well, but. well I, I mean, I knew that the chance of joining the Spirit was, or at least that, to me, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so kind of like Snuffy saying that, you know, he put his nose to the grindstone. That's what I did, too, because I knew, I mean, I wasn't a guitar player, so I wasn't competing. Yeah, I mean, I wrote on guitar, so, but I wasn't competing with Randy as, uh, be a, the next or wasn't going to be a twin guitar player like the Allman Brothers or something you know uh, my my job was to write sing and play bass well, and I had some songs but I moved into a studio apartment uh, you know, Ven- block from Venice Beach and got up every morning and started uh, writing songs and interestingly enough when I think about it uh a lot of those songs on that feedback album were written on bass. I'd come up with a bass riff and then start singing to it. And, you know, for you young rock and rollers out there, <laughs> writing on bass is actually a pretty good thing because what I learned about that is if you lay down the, you got the bass part built into the song, the song works out very easily because the drums have to find something that fits with that. But anyway, back to your point. Um, uh, I was intimidated not by Randy in particular but just the opportunity and it's kind of determined to live into it you know sort of like Snuffy did you know I might add here that a dear friend of mine Steve Perry wrote a lot of those journey hits on bass really uh, yeah he used to talk to me about it because he couldn't play a guitar but he could play that one note (laughs) I wonder if it's because you look cool playing a bass (laughs) <laughs> Snuffy, I don't know if you remember uh, do you remember uh, down at Haji Sound when Steve Perry was hanging around when he was the- sweeping up yeah and he was uh, I, I think he was trying to put together a band with you and uh, yeah, Tim Bogart and Carmen the drummer Carmen Apice or Apice and, or whatever his name and, is and Joel dig this uh, Yeah, like I say Snuffy and I were playing around town you know and we'd make like 30 bucks a man playing the Starwood and Steve uh, was a sad guy kind of hanging around the studio at Haji uh, and because he was hoping to get this band together and it wasn't working and I think he even sang background vocals on one of my yeah you said that the other day but I didn't I can't if he did I can't remember which ones I didn't want to put his name on there if, if he didn't but one day he called me and said, "No, I see you guys are playing at the Starwood. Uh, can I come sing background vocals with you?" And I, I said, "Man, that, that'd be great." I said, "Except we all, we make 
like 30 bucks a man, uh, <laughs> you'd have to rehearse. And I can't ask these guys to take any less than 30 bucks a man. I don't want to ask you to do it for free. You know? so, uh, and it could be, I'm not sure, but it could be that Alex Casanegras, who owned the studio, uh, may have been the one who suggested him to Journey because Alex had engineered a previous Journey album or two uh, before Steve joined the band. But anyway, that's another story. How did uh, how'd you get Crazy Like a Fox into Keith Moon's hands, or how did that all come about? Uh, just dumb luck on that one. I, I was at, uh, this was after my brother joined JoJo Gunn. I was at a JoJo Gunn recording session, and John Stronach was the engineer, and he happened to mention that he was getting ready to start a Keith Moon album the next week. And I said, who's producing? And he said, Mal Evans. And I said, the Beatles roadie? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, do they have all the songs? He said, I don't think so. I said, well, I'd like to pitch something to him. And said, well, come on down to the record plant on Wednesday. I'll introduce you to Mal. And so I went home. I wrote one song uh, specifically for the event, but I also had this other song called Crazy Like a Fox. I thought, oh, that might, that might work for Keith. Uh, and so I went, I played him the one that I especially wrote. And he said, oh, I don't know. And I played him Crazy Like a Fox. And he said, okay, I, I could hear Keith doing that. We'll cut it on Friday. This was Wednesday. Oh. <laughs> and and uh, the way song plugging should always be and has never been since for me. Uh, it's anyway, a super so fun said, song. Well, and I tell you, it was fun watching him do it. And uh, Oh, so you watched him record it? Oh, well, I played on, well, okay, here's the next part. Yeah, we got. I said, um, would you have the musicians for the session? He said, no. I said, well, of course, I know the song, but I said, also my brother, who plays in JoJo Gunn, he knows the song. He said, oh, why don't we get all of JoJo Gunn to play on it? So I called that guys up. You want to do a Keith Moon session on Friday? And they said, of course. So we did, go they pay you guys, did they pay you guys for the session? Oh, yeah, yeah. This was, Oh, this you was, killed it. This is... <laughs> Well, not only that, after that, they invited me. I played on, ended up playing about half the album. So uh, I got to meet Ringo. He came down one day and uh, a bunch of other people and Bobby Keys. Uh, but on that session, in addition to JoJo Gunn, they said, I was playing acoustic six string. Uh, Spencer Davis was sitting next to me playing acoustic 12 string. Oh, neat. My brother was playing electric and Jesse Ed Davis was playing electric. Uh, although the solo you hear on the record is my brother, not uh, Jesse, and Keith on a set of drums, and Curly Smith on a set of drums, all on the basic track. That's the way they wanted to record it. Wow. It's, no idea about that, Al. Uh, and so we got, and then, you know, Keith had just heard the song, I guess, the day before, so I wrote the lyrics out, got put it on a music stand, got out there with him, had the headphones on, it was kind of cueing him where to come in. And he's out there with a bottle of Cavassier in his left hand, kind of reeling around. <laughs> uh, and I'm cueing him, and he's not really singing, but he's being Keith Moon all over the record. You know, she's crazy like a fox, and that fox got her eyes on you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's a, then they call me back for more sessions. I got my girlfriend and I, you remember Julia stuff, we went. Went up to Keith's house for dinner one night. You know, his 
girlfriend was that really beautiful Danish girl that is on the cover of the record with him. And um, so got to know him a little bit, you know, and heard some heard some stories and uh, got to play on about half the record. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So was he all drunk at dinner too, or was he good? You know, it was interesting. He was he was very much the English gentleman when we went up there. And I don't know if that my girlfriend at the time was English and had gone to English girls' school, and I guess had a proper accent. So I don't know if he was uh-huh. if that influenced the way he, he behaved. But he was no, he was. I remember him being uh, very gentlemanly and with uh, his girlfriend there and my girlfriend. That's nice. It's good to see a different side. You know, <laughs> you just hear all the, the nuttiness a lot with certain people. It's nice to hear that there is a little bit of uh, well, he, he normality. Did me, he did t- tell me one story when he was doing the uh, uh, Tommy movie. He and uh, uh, what was what was the actor, the rough and tumble actor that was in it? The, uh, I think of it a minute. Anyway, they took a break from the movie and they were in the costume and makeup and went to Oliver Reed. That's what I'm thinking of. Uh, he and Oliver Reed went across from the studio to the local pub and uh, apparently there some locals were giving him some shit and I guess because they were in costume and makeup and some guy came over and pinned his hand to the table with an ice pick and severed a ligament or something and because I, I said well you know I was wondering why are you not playing drums more on your your own album because he played some but not that much you know he said oh well you know this hand is kind of you know and then he told me that story and I said you know you are Keith Moon you know and uh wouldn't, wouldn't it be kind of a good idea to see a hand specialist <laughs> <laughs> but, so he uh, got in a fight with the guy and the guy stuck an ice pick through his hand that's what he said. I, yeah, that's what he said. Uh, said pinned his hand to the table. <laughs> wow. I don't know. Uh, I haven't heard anybody else tell that story before, but that's what he told me. You know, I was going to give you crap. I was going to be like, so you left the music industry to go into law. Was, was it for more cocaine? That wasn't Al's thing. No. Al was, well, was the straight one around the around that group i'm afraid well not as straight as you're making me out to be <laughs> I, I, want, I wanted to be a lawyer when i was a little kid i, I thought judge wapner was the coolest guy in town man and then i went to work at a law firm when i was 17 and i was like get me out of here yeah, it's really? not what i so thought it was i won't tell you the whole story but the brief, I, first of all i was already a lawyer when i joined spirit uh right. because what happened was when undergraduate school i was in a band with two law students. It, we were making money on weekends and they already had families. It was time for them to graduate. It was time for me to graduate. To, I was pre-med actually. And they said, no, you can't do that because you'll have to leave Austin and uh, break up the band. We have one more year of law school left. Go to law school with us to keep the band together. And so I went to law school to keep the band together. Wow. Like I couldn't just hang out because Vietnam was going on and I get drafted. So I started law school thinking, okay, I'll go one year. Realize I've been tricked because if you finish the first year, you might as well finish. That's the killer See, year. I read that you said that the first year was the hardest year, but I've always been told that the third year is the one that's tough. 
I don't know. Uh, or maybe I was just the most afraid in the first year, you know, because so, uh, I didn't, I didn't think I could do it. So, uh, yeah. well, it's probably that I worked the hardest on the first year because I was afraid because I made the best grades the first year and grades went down after that. So <laughs> more fun, know. more fun. Um, so are you friendly with Timothy Busfield, Snuffy? Sure. Talk to uh, Timmy it's, all the time. It's super random. I'm, I'm drunk in a bar years and years ago. And I, I'd made a, a, a movie and I'm bitching about the film industry to this guy at the bar. I don't know. It's, I didn't know it was Timothy. I didn't know. I didn't know who he was. I'm bitching away. And he goes, yeah, I did some stuff in film. I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's because you live in LA and everybody's fucking ass. <laughs> and I'm just right, right. on and on. And he was so nice about it, man. He was so nice. And then at the end, it was a friend. She's like, do you know who that guy is? And I'm like, no, he said he directed something or something. <laughs> but he would be starting in 30 something. Well, that's, where, why, where I that's yeah, why I brought that's it up. That's why I brought it up. But, he, but I worked with him on West Wing. I I scored a little film for him. He was teaching uh, back in the Midwest, uh, teaching uh, filmmaking. And I scored a little film for him that he made with his students and with his wife, Melissa. And, you know, he's a sweetheart. He's, he's a, a beautiful super guy. nice guy. Yeah, it was just, I saw him again at the bar and I was just like, <laughs> I didn't know you're like, you actually really do this for a living. I was just drunk. And he's like, no, you're whatever. It's all good. We had, we had big Malibu fires one year and I live out pretty close to where he lived, but he overlooked Malibu mm-hmm. and he and his wife were gone and uh, the fires raged up there. And he's never uh, let me forget it that I went up. I said, I'll go check on your house. And I went up in the fires and checked on his house and that it was okay. And he's, He's always, that's the story he always tells about me. Not that I played guitar, not that, uh, actually Timmy's, Timmy's in a documentary they're releasing about me on December 1st called Up to Snuff. Timmy's one of the, one of the people in it. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Hey, Snuffy, where where are we going to be able to see your documentary? You know, it'll be, uh, it'll be streaming on, on the streaming sites. You just look up, up to snuff. I, you know what? I agreed to do it only because I thought it, I could be of some service to people who, you know, struggle like I did with drugs and alcohol and then you know, ended up with this whole second career. So I'm not involved in the sale distribution, any of that. All right. Um, Roseanne, I wanted to bring up Roseanne because just from looking at the portfolio or listening to the portfolios of your music that I was finding, it seems very different than a lot of the other stuff you put together. Um, I get it. You're going for a vibe, but you brought in like a lot of different instruments. I didn't hear on other stuff. Um, was this instruction or inspiration or both? No, uh, there's a tricky story to that. The first couple of years of Roseanne was scored by two other guys. Um, and, and their mind escapes me right now. But they wrote the original theme and the ri- original arrangement of all that stuff and kind of brought blues to Roseanne, that real kind of gutty, blue-collar thing. And then Tom Arnold and Roseanne got married, and Tom Arnold was a, a real good friend of mine. He's in the documentary as well. And uh, so Tom said, like, come do this show. Know. Yeah, he's crazy. He's God, crazy. He's so funny. But he came to me, he said, come come do this show. So the other guys were never very happy. I just took over their show and did five, six years of it. But uh, I basically took their format, which was sax and slide guitar and 
harmonica and I took it and molded it into more guitar, harmonica, more electric blues based so that I'd play more. Uh, I, I just kind of changed it a little bit. And we went, actually went back toward the later years closer to the original sound, but it wasn't my choice at the very beginning. I wish I could take credit for it. I wish I could get all the royalties for it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but that's the that's what happened. And I came in and did the rest of the I'm rest so of the bad. What, what I figured out is, I, and I hope this isn't offensive. So what I would do is I would listen to the opening song of Cheers, and then I switched it quick enough I could just get the tail end of the song of Roseanne and watch Roseanne instead of Cheers because I like the show so much better. <laughs> you didn't like the Roseanne theme? Well, I didn't. It's not that I disliked it. I loved the Cheers song. I thought, I, I don't know. I well, hey, it. you know what? I didn't write that either, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. Okay. Um, so when I was going to put together a podcast, I was at my friend's house and his daughter's in fifth grade. And she said, I should ask all of my guests a question. And the question was, when did you first feel famous? And it's been a good one. So it doesn't have to be fame. If you don't want to go down that road, that's perfectly fine. But what moment then would you choose that would be a defining moment in each of your careers that would be worth telling somebody? Well, uh, for me, I mean, I guess one uh, moment that it's kind of hard to beat uh is when i was in spirit and we headlined carnegie hall uh, oh yeah and i'll tell you something funny about that is uh see that was in 72 well in the summer of 69 i worked for the summer uh in new york for ascap and i got to be uh friendly with ron delsoner uh as being the guy from ascap who came down to all his shows at the uh, Walman Rink uh, that he, he put on Sly and the Family Stone. Everybody played this original Jeff Beck group. Uh, anyway, it turns out uh, Ron Delsner, I didn't know it either, was promoting the show we did at Carnegie Hall. Well, if, if you've ever been backstage at Carnegie Hall, it's it's upstairs. And as you're coming down the stairs, it's down this, this stairway. And so as I'm coming down to get on stage, Ron Delsner and I, is coming up we meet on the stairway he does a double take and he said i didn't know you were in this band i said yeah i'm working for you tonight he just knew me as the guy from ascap a few years before <laughs> uh, but the now here's the uh lesson for the youngsters out there okay that was the high point and i'm thinking that time i'm that era i'm whispering isn't it great i'll never have to do clubs anymore. I'm always going to be able to do concerts. Well, the band breaks up uh, a year or two later and no longer have that name. And I found myself doing talent night at the Troubadour on Monday nights where they give you 20 minutes to play. In fact, Snuffy and I may have done that together. I think. Right. But so, you know, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. That's his life. <laughs> you know, Joel, I have two moments that come up because I had two careers. Yeah. You know, I had I had the one when I was in this band Stray Dog and Emerson Lake and Palmer signed us and we did a world tour with them, played 50,000 seater soccer stadiums in, in Italy. And but I really didn't feel like I had arrived because, you know, we were a cult band. We didn't have hit records. Uh I remember when we played Madison Square Garden two nights 
1974, I guess, maybe 75. I can't remember. I think it's 74. Uh, played two nights there right before Christmas. And, you know, it's pretty hard not to get off on playing two nights in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. But then the two days later, I got fired off the tour. So, you know, so much for that long-lived fame. But the one thing that really stuck out for me in my composing career was I'd been doing it about 10 years and I wrote a score to Stephen King's The Stand, a miniseries. Yeah. And I was up, I was up for an Emmy for the score and I was sitting at a table with all these other composers and they announced the winner and it was the guy sitting next to me. And I stood up and I started applauding and I realized in that moment for the first time, I felt like I belonged at the table. That's great. And that's when I really felt like, wow, it's okay. You know, this is good. This is a high moment. And that's something that stuck out to me in my entire composing career. That moment where it wasn't about winning. It was about being part of. Yeah. Did he push you out of the way to go get his award? (laughs) No, no, I was, as I was, he, he's the guy who scored all the Clint Eastwood movies. I mean, he's a great composer. Come on. Yeah. I mean, wow. (laughs) Um, But you know, that was a huge moment for me. Uh, a huge moment of, if nothing else, self self acceptance. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. What about working for Eric Burden? I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I love well, Eric Burden. Know, such a big. Fan. I worked with Eric back in the days. Eric was the last tour I was on before I got sober. So, Who's also in your documentary, by the way. <laughs> oh yeah, Eric's in there. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Eric talks about how crazy I was. You know, we did a, you know. That was great. Eric always gave me freedom. Same with Shaka. She gave me the same freedom. But Eric was just all vibe. And you walk on stage and, you know, you didn't get notes. It was just like, go for it. And uh, and it was really freeing. I mean, I, I wish I'd been sober. Then I'd probably learn a lot more. <laughs> you toured with Shaka Khan as well? or Yeah. Oh, I didn't That's know. in the documentary as well. But, uh, yeah, I toured with Shaka once I got sober. And uh, right up until uh, 1987, when I scored, started scoring television, I was musical director for Laura Branigan and Shaka Khan and, you know, did a bunch of different things. So God, could she sing? You know, oh. it's tough on this because you talk about a lot of the same artists and it's like, well, really, they were so good. And you sound like an idiot because it's like, yeah, of course they're good. But there's just certain people or there's certain tracks or something just stands out to you a little more sometimes and oh she had so much just flavor to her voice yeah. it's just oh, yeah. so layered it's wonderful Beautiful. so Beautiful. speaking of awesomeness here patty dahlstrom how did you start working with this fine lady that i i got to listen to last night for a little hey, while what? i'm gonna have to have her uh watch this podcast because she's really yeah, she'll be happy, I hope. giving her some love yeah, because uh, what I read was like, yeah, you know, I really thought she should have been bigger. I'm like, oh, what kind of crap is that? She did good. What the hell? Who's this guy? You know, she wrote some stuff from all these people. <laughs> so I was like, huh. Well, I, believe it or not, I knew Patty from uh, college, the university. Uh, she's from Houston. And uh, she was a few years behind me in school, but she came down to the University of Texas. And her big sister was dating a, a guy I knew. And so... And she would, Patty would always come to uh, hear my band play and we'd let her get up and sing a song. She she was really into Marianne Faithful. So she would kind of get up and sing uh, uh, As Tears Go By or whatever that Marianne Faithful song was. And uh, she 
she just decided she dropped out of school and said, I'm going to go to LA and be a songwriter. And really, I don't know if she even knew anybody out there. She went out there, she got, uh, she got a gig as a, a writer with, for Motown. So oh. she was, interestingly enough, yeah, she was uh, uh, signed as a songwriter from Motown, then got uh, a record deal with Uni, uh, Russ Regan's, when he was running the label, and did um, an album that Michael Amardian uh, produced, and I think that was her boyfriend at the time, too, for a while. And then Spirit had broken up, so I did... Uh, a tour, in fact, it was the only tour she ever did. Uh, this was, you know, if you heard her stuff, you sort of heard what it's like. It's yeah. slow, very delicate uh, kinds of things. And it was kind of interesting because her band on the road was me, fresh out of spirit on bass. Oh. Michael uh, Canoose, the guitar player from Fever Tree. Uh, <sighs> it's uh, the key, Mark Stein from the Vanilla Fudge on keyboards oh great and was she connected to fever tree because of houston yeah she knew my oh, michael wow. from houston and uh and this guy named steve lawrence who was a girl on nutbush city limits i continue anyway so here we are which, the band was trying to be real delicate with it there would always be like one song or so towards the end where we could kind of uh let it out a little bit but uh, we had a good time on on that tour, but she didn't like to tour much. She, she hadn't worked. She didn't grow up being a performer. She mm -hmm. was a, a songwriter who then, you know, it's kind of like the Carol King thing for then started performing, but she was, she didn't really push to perform or, and I think if she had things would have been better because she, the, the record companies kept believing it. Well, Russ Reagan went over to 20th century and, signed her again and so she ended up doing two or th maybe three albums for 20th one for uni i don't know she did got to do quite a few albums and we wrote uh four or five or six songs together she was a lyricist primarily so she'd give me a lyric and i'd work on it and uh actually the only, only song that she ever had make the charts single charts was one uh, called he did me wrong but he did it right which uh we wrote, and then Bobby Gentry did it, and then uh, Black Group, Hodges, James, and Smith, but it didn't ever become a hit for anybody. But anyway, that's a little bit of the Patty Dawson story. And uh, so, um, and I've, I've had some winners. What odd gigs have you guys had that uh, that are, are that you remember? So you were playing at a strip club, I had read Stuffy. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the, the, that's come up a few times, by the way. Where, uh, where was that, Stuffy? Yeah. That's a cellar club they're talking about, Al, down in uh, Market Square in Houston and oh. <laughs> in Fort Worth and in Dallas, yeah. I played those joints. You know, the, the gig that comes up with Al, I always think of that little place at the beach we used to play, and I remember more about nights playing there that I remember about any of our bigger gigs. Uh, was it Shenanigans? Yeah, shen Shenanigans in uh, Hermosa Beach. Hermosa Beach, right. We had some good gigs there. In fact, do you remember uh, one night, I forget the guy's name, but the sax player uh, from, 
lived upstairs. It, it was from a, a oh, right. He had a studio upstairs, didn't he? Yeah, it, it was. He was from that oh, that big English group that now I'm blanking out on. But he came down and sat in with us. Uh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, he's a great player, and he joined. It was an English or an Australian group? I can't remember. But you know what? What really uh, was interesting to me about Shenanigans? I mean, it was a place that wasn't like a listening room. It was a place that I think cover bands played a lot and stuff. And we go down there and. We play, I think, all original material, unless we did maybe we did a couple of covers, and they always dug it, and that's what always kind of gave us validity that hey, this stuff is. It, it was always kind of frustrating that you had to try to convince a an A and R guy when you could see real human beings out there digging it, you know. But yeah, you had, you had to get the blessing at that time from. Uh, in our community so real quick to i'll try and be a bit concise about it because this you teach courses on this but to go on the law i'm a brand new writer i'm writing music is it is it important for me to copyright each one of my songs is it important for me to immediately join ascap or bmi is it important for me to get on sound exchange um do you like tune core is what would you say for a young person who's who who is just getting going what are the things that you would say you should look into immediately and learn about on the well, law side? As ASCAP, BMI, the Performing Rights Societies, and and Sound Exchange are only relevant if you have music out to sell. It, and uh, ASCAP, BMI, uh, they they collect for writers and publishers. Uh, Sound Exchange does not collect for writers and publishers. They collect for artists and the owners of the sound recordings, which are usually the record company. But if you're releasing it on your own, then you are the record company. So a lot of times people don't understand that distinction. Uh, but the mo So that's important once you start putting your music out there. But even before you put your music out, if you're out there playing it live or uh, getting it around uh, on the internet or however, you should register the copyrights with the U.S. Copyright Office. It's not that expensive. And even though the copyright law came into effect when it got changed in 78, says when you fix your song in a medium, even if you sing it into your iPhone or whatever, you're protected. Okay, yes, uh, you're protected, but the reason you should still register it uh, is because if someone does intentionally infringe your copyright and you have it properly registered, you can threaten them with their downside is up to $150,000 per infringement. Whereas if you haven't registered it, you may get, uh, you may win the lawsuit, but then the second phase of the trial is, okay, what are the damage? What's the damages? How much were you damaged? Well, Maybe you can't. The, burden, the burden of proof shifts as well because of uh, who the, who's holding the copyright. Yeah. So, so then, yeah. So then, like I said, then you got to prove. So basically what's going to happen is unless you can prove significant damage, you're not going to sue anybody. Uh, and for, but if you can, I mean, if you can threaten them with the potential downside of $150,000 per infringement, they usually want to settle. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
All right. I just figured it might be a good question for people on the get-go here and get them going their way. I appreciate your guys' time. Snuffy, I will be looking up your documentary and find it online. Uh, I found it quite easily, so it's there. And Al, I know your stuff is on Spotify because I may have listened to it recently (laughs) (laughs) and enjoyed it. But uh, is there any other place that you would like us to go check out stuff? I just might add, before you go finish, Al, that we've been threatening to play some gigs. So just look some spots. I know some spots. Keep in touch. All right. So, Al, where can I find your stuff? Uh, go to alstahaley.com. The only trick about that is spelling Stahaley. <laughs> so if you can out. figure that Actually, out. Actually, I think you had an album where you wrote that out, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, we made an attempt to uh, try to uh, uh, do it phonetically, but even that didn't work. You know? yeah, it didn't help out. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, you'll say people with nicknames like, you know, does anybody not call you Snuffy? And it's like, Lawyers, accountants, <laughs> legal representatives, you know, any kind doctors, of doctors. Call me William, yeah. The doctors do. <laughs> yeah, anybody yeah. you don't really want to hear news from. Right. They're the ones who know your name. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I really do appreciate your time. Thank you for it. I look forward to talking to you guys again. Thank you. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe by clicking the round button on the bottom right. To learn more about me or the guests on the show, go to joelrody.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. The handle's Joel Rody. And don't forget, when you party like a rock star, don't be a dick. <laughs>